This past week, I uh, left Sunday evening and I went down to California to the Senior Pastor Conference. Calvary Chapel has pastor conferences all over the United States. Um, we'll have one up here in September, and you're actually welcome to go to it. Um, Calvary's sometimes a little different than other churches in the sense that um, there's no secrets and there's nothing, no hocus pocus at a pastor's conference. And so when that happens, there's uh, some wonderful teachers coming in. Tom Stipe will be here from Denver. And uh, you're welcome to come up to Warm Beach and join in that. So we'll let you know about it as we get closer. But we had a great time. Um, I say we, me, and the other pastors. And um, I went down hungry, and the Lord fed me. And uh, that's not a bad thing, is it? And so uh, it was just a great, great time. And I love going down there and being encouraged. They went through the book of First Corinthians. And... Um, Give us a couple of weeks, actually, and uh, we'll upload those messages onto the website. And so you could go to the website and download them or just listen to them on the website. And uh, so just kind of be checking the website and you'll see them up there pretty soon. Well, Genesis uh, 34 and 35 is where we're at today. So follow along with me as I read these uh, first few verses of 34. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had boarded Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her. He took her and he laid with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, um, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with uh, Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. And thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I'll give you according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. You know, you don't have to live long at all in this life before you realize that there are consequences for every action. An example is when we're kids, uh, we know that if our parents uh, have chores for us, that if we do those chores, then we'll maybe get rewarded. Um, in my house, I, I was thinking, I wonder if families even do this anymore. Uh, being in a home where my mom worked and my dad, of course, was gone. My dad divorced my mom. Um, there, my mom kept a calendar. And every single day when we got home from school, we had to go to that date and our name and there were things listed that we were supposed to do. And so me and my brother Russ had to dust the furniture and my brother Dick might have to vacuum. And for me, it was probably put the chicken in the oven at four o'clock or something like that. Maybe that's why I love to cook and eat. You know, maybe she knew he could do it. The other two don't understand or the other three. But anyway, and if we didn't do it, we'd catch it and we'd suffer. There'd be consequences. It isn't any different with adults, is there? If you... Um, Drive at the speed, 60 miles an hour, give or take a little bit. Um, they'll overlook it. But if you go out there on I-5 and kick it up to 90, uh, Washington State Patrol will pull you over and they'll let you contribute to their fun, you know. And your insurance company will let you do the same, see. And so there are consequences. And for Jacob and his family, and of course that would include many servants, they now would face consequences for the decision that they made when they came back into the land. I didn't point this out to you last week, um, but because I knew where we headed this week. But when they came back into the land and where they settled, um, in part, there's consequences for that. They came back first to Succoth and then they moved over the Jordan to Shechem. And you could see on this map where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem is. And then up to the north, so you get the bearing. So they went from Succoth across. And it was in this area then that they settled rather than uh, going down to Bethel, which they will do later. And because of that, 
there was a price they'd pay. The area was occupied by a people known as the Hivites, verse 2. They were one of seven tribes or seven nations, depending how you want to look at it, that were in what we know as Israel. And in time, Israel was to go into the land and drive these seven nations out. Uh, two more will be mentioned later, the Canaanites and the Perizzites in verse uh, 30. But Joshua 3.10, I just want you to see them, shows us all of them. They were the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amalite, and the Jebusites. And so, um, I don't know who named them that. Okay, obviously they weren't English. Okay, uh, but anyway, those were the seven nations that were in Palestine that Israel would have to deal with. And, and as we mentioned last week, when Esau came up to see Jacob traveling with 400 men, the area very much then, if you picture it, was an area of tribes, a mixture of that, if you will. There were big tribes, there were small tribes, there were powerful tribes, there would have been weak tribes. Um, but that's what it was. So it wasn't as if like today where, you know, there's a America and there's a, a line up north and there's Canada, a line to the south and there's Mexico. It wouldn't have been that crisp, if you will. And some, you and I would say, well, that's really not much of a nation. And we'd say that I would consider that more of a tribe of people. But that was what was made up. And so rather than going to Bethel, where Abraham had settled, Jacob then chose to settle in Succoth and then over to Shechem for several years. And it was probably a 10 year period. So you need to understand that as we go through the word that there are these time periods that you need to understand because it's easy to read and just think this stuff is just happening like that. But it's really not. And so that's where they settled. And the price, um, the reason they settled there, it's thought, is because you could see the Jordan River was there. And so there would have been a lot of land to pasture the flocks. Uh, Bethel to the south, Hebron to the south, the altitude would have climbed a thousand feet. And it would have been more of a work to do that. But they did settle there. And the price then was a heavy price. Dinah, the daughter, lost her virginity. Um, from that, a threat came to all of Jacob's family. And really, as I'll show you before we're done this morning, a real deep rift became with Jacob and two of his sons. And so, again, from the passage this morning, um, there's things to consider. And really, there's the main thing of doing things the Lord's way Unless we find ourselves in the same situation. Okay. Now, to refresh your memory, uh, Jacob had two wives and two maidservants. Um, Twelve children came from that. Rachel was, of course, his bride of choice. And she bore Joseph. At the end of the chapter 36, I'll show you Benjamin will be born. Uh, Bilhad was Rachel's maidservant. And from her came Dan and Naphtali. And, of course, all these will become the tribes of Israel. Then there was Leah. Remember, he worked for seven years and, and Laban tricked him for Leah. Then he worked another for seven for Rachel. So from Leah was where the majority of the children came. There was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and then Dinah. And then from Zilpah, who was uh, Leah's maid, came Gad and Asher. The thing you need to understand, there's a real possibility all these ladies lived in their own tent. Okay, Now, they lived in tents, right? You understand that. Okay, they didn't have houses like we have. But it's thought that, and you could imagine uh, four women, uh, each having their own kids, same father, but it could be interesting at times. And so you could imagine then, when you look at who was born to Leah, you'll see there is Simeon Levi there, and the daughter is Dinah. That group would have been tight, of course, and more loyal maybe than the others because that, they all had the same mother. And so Dinah then being the second youngest, Joseph the youngest, the only girl, no doubt she was loved by her brothers, protected by all the boys in the family. Having crossed over the Jordan and settled by this Hivite city of Shechem, Jacob even buying land, <clears throat> she being the only daughter then, would visit, and I get the impression they're, they're, they've set up their camp outside the city, um, she would visit those who lived in Shechem. And it says that in verse one, she went out to visit who? The daughters of the land. And so it probably just wasn't one time, but probably multiple times she would go over. They think she was about 15 or 16 and she would go over, do what? She would go over and play and with the girls that were 15 and 16 years old because there were no girls in her family. 
And so they were, in a sense, her playmates. Well, as this was going on during her visits, Shechem, the son of Hamar, and the city's named Shechem, but there's this prince named Shechem, um, and his dad was believed to have found the city. He raped Dinah, and it says that in verse 2 when it says he took her and went and, and laid with her by force. The English standard says he seized her and laid with her and humiliated her, and the New Living just puts it right on the money. It says he seized her and raped her, and that's what happened. And, and this shows us then the, the moral climate of the area. Um, this is why God uh, would have Israel drive out these nations, because they were a bad influence. And But it does show us in the moral climate of the city. And it seems uh, such a thing was actually acceptable to the people because we'll read nowhere in these two chapters of any remorse, of any apology, or any consequences that comes to the son, very possibly being a prince, uh, being either, uh, it, I think he's almost ruling at this time, Maybe the people had even seen this happen before and they knew there was nothing they could do about it. And so another reason Jacob shouldn't really have settled here. Shechem then fell in love with her. And it was probably more of an attraction than real love. And I think if you look at it again, if you look at verses 2 and 3, I think you need to put a gap right there. You read verse 2 and you read what you think you read, you read. There is a rape that takes place there. A man forces himself upon this young lady. And then you go right into two and it says he's deeply attracted and all. I believe there's a gap there. Days, weeks, maybe even some months there. And then all of a sudden this other thing starts taking place where he says he loves her. But I really, even in this, I'm questioning that, whether it wasn't more just an attraction than real love, even though it says he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. Why do I say that? Well, because man is very capable of telling women what they want to hear. Men are master manipulators, aren't they? Ladies, that was your chance, okay? You're, you're kind. You're very kind. Thank you. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that now. And I just probably got myself in trouble with all the guys. But no, seriously, in Christ, we're not, of course. But I think that, you know, this guy, this young guy, this prince, really just was being, obviously he wasn't of the Lord, and so he's being led of the enemy and being led of his flesh. But he wanted to marry her, and marriage in these days was arranged by the parents, so he asks his father to arrange it, and he goes to Jacob with his request. But notice, like father, like son, Hamar seems to not be bothered by what he had done or the people of Shechem. And so there was they were morally bankrupt, weren't they? If you could, the vault of proper behavior was empty. And, you know, I think this is something important for you and I to just give some thought for a minute. You know, many of us in this room did not grow up as believers, I grew up in a broken home, so I didn't have a father kind of pointing me to Christ and, and laying it out. And when you're a mom raising four boys, my mom did a great job. But let me tell you, your hands are full. She worked full time. She never took any help from anybody. She raised us boys. We worked. And so, you know, there's things that really she should have done maybe that she didn't do, and maybe she just didn't couldn't do them. And so you grow up that way, and, and sometimes you're not taught the ways of the Lord. I wasn't. I wasn't taught about morality and those type of things but it speaks to our heart i think because sometimes um, i think if you could picture in your life there's a vault you could say different vaults and and one of them is your vault of morality and as a believer there should be uh, moral standards principles um, what is right what is wrong in that area that's in there and of course we want that vault to be full but in this case for this people this the hivites you could say man the vault door was open and it was empty in there. There was no morality. And of course, that's not what you and I want. And not only did he do this for his son, then he proposed verse 9 to Jacob that he says, intermarry with us and, and we'll both share in all that we have. And again, your radar should be going off. That doesn't sound like something Jacob should consider or do, and it wasn't. But he also had in mind, you'll see when we get there in verse 23, that in time, guess what? We'll take over Jacob will take over his belongings, his people. And so I think he was thinking about that. And Shechem was probably a little bit bigger and had the edge on Jacob. I don't think it was a huge city or, if you will, a huge tribe or nation. But I think they knew they were bigger than Jacob and we could get these guys and we'll get all they have. And so in the big picture, again, of this good and bad consequences coming from the choices and the decisions we make, I want to show you something here, a, a biblical principle that comes out. 
And, and it's the principle of that you and I are in the world, but we're not to be part of the world. And that really comes out very clear in this passage this morning. Jesus said this, didn't he? He said that we as believers are in this world. We are living among the sin. We're living among sinners. In a sense, we are sinners, but we're just saved sinners, hopefully. But we live amongst that, and the reason is to win them. See, Jesus' plan, God's will, was that Jesus would come for the time he did, but then disciples would be raised up, and you and I would carry on that work. And so, we are not of this world. We aren't to cross over those lines whereby we accept and we embrace then that which is really of the world. And what are we saying when we mean that? We're really saying it's not of God, it's of the enemy, of Satan. And you and I need to be very careful that we understand that, that yes, we are to be in the world. I'll show you in just a moment. Jesus left us there, but we are not to be of the world. We are not to cross that line. In John 17, it says, Jesus' prayer, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given you, uh, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. There it is. See, even as I am not of the world. And then he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I love that verse, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As for as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And so by Jacob choosing now to live where he did, it's a reminder us to us that you guys, we have to put up safeguards. Because why? We live in a world, and if there are not safeguards up, it's going to influence us, and it's actually going to lead us away from Christ and the way the Lord would have us live. And so we don't want to succumb to it. And so on the one hand... You could say Jacob would have been better off not stopping there, going down into Bethel, which means the house of God. But then as what we just saw when Jesus in John 17 talks, it isn't so much about a a physical location as where one's heart and life is. Now listen to that. See, we make the mistake sometimes. We think it is about a physical location. And it's not always so. It's really the location of our heart. The location of our life is our heart, is our life resting, sitting, relying upon Jesus, our rock and his life, or is it on the world, which is sifting sand? And so that's really the key here. And so you and I, yes, we're tempted at times to to change this, to change that, maybe move here, move there thinking, you know, I got to get away from this. Well, let me tell you, just like Jacob, there's nowhere he's going to go. He is in a land that God is going to give the nation of Israel as their land, but there are seven ungodly nations in this land. So if he was to leave this area and go to another area, guess what? They're going to be there. And that's the same that we face. So the answer is this. The answer is depth in Jesus. See, so often we as believers make this mistake that we are either living in the world and then we become part of the world and we start to accept its ways and beliefs. That's one mistake people make, and that happens. All of us in this room, I'm sure, know at least one person, a friend, that at one time had an incredible walk with God. They, they bo- totally believed in Christ. They believed in everything the Word said. But then the world started to creep in. You know, it's, it's like for me, I think of my life, you know, when I was in high school and I got into all those drugs and I made a mess of my life and then I came to Christ. Let me tell you, those are desperate days. Desperate in the sense that Drugs were taking me down and desperate in the sense that I needed something else. So there's no doubt. Jesus, I need you. Okay. But then as you go along, it's really easy to start getting comfortable. And you start thinking, well, I don't need him as much anymore. I'm stronger than I really am. And that's what people do at times. And so the world starts creeping in. And we've got to be careful of that. The other thing we do is at times we live in the world. But then, like I said, we can run from the world. And I've seen people do this. So they isolate themselves. And where's the witness in that? See, Jesus said that. He didn't say, Father, take them out of the world. He says, Father, leave them in the world, but keep them from the evil one. See, and that is so important, you guys. Isolation isn't the answer. You know, uh, is all as much as we respect, like, for instance, the Amish. Okay, incredible group of people, everything else. Isolation isn't the answer, though. 
Their witness is limited because of the lifestyle they choose to live. And so Jesus said that. That isn't the answer. And so again, what's the answer? Depth. The answer is depth in Jesus, which allows us then to learn how we're to live and yet not be part of the world and be affected by that, but be affecting the world for the kingdom. You know, at the pastor's conference this week, I was just at, I can't remember what teacher it was, but one of the things one of the guys was pointing out was so often in ministry as pastors, we start worrying about the breadth of our ministry instead of the depth. And of course, throughout every teaching, man, I told you I went hungry. And so I was listening and I was making notes and I felt the Lord just spoke to my heart. He said, Scott, listen to me. Worry about the depth of your life and then worry about the depth of the people I've given you to pastor. Let me take care of the breath of Calvary Chapel Linwood. Let me take care of the next half of the building. Let me take care of neighbors that don't want us to use their parking lot. Let me take care of these things, Lord, see. And I said, that's right. And that's what we need here, see. We want depth in our life in Jesus. Henry Morris kind of listened to what he says of this. He says, he probably, speaking of Jacob, regretted settling down so close to a place like Shechem where it would almost, uh, almost impossible not to have children subjected to bad influence. On the other hand, where else in Canaan would it have been any better? He needed to pray and trust God more and to help his children live victorious in a pagan world. And so that is what we need as well, you guys. We need to not run from the world and that, but we need to learn how to be strong in Christ and how to be able to live in this world for Jesus Christ. And so very, very seriously right now, if that tugs at your heart and maybe you sense that the world is getting into your life, okay, then I'll tell you what needs to happen. You need to repent this morning before you leave. You do. You're here because you love the Lord. I'm here because I love the Lord. And hopefully we're very serious about that. And so if all of a sudden we realize, yeah, I'm being influenced too much. Well, then that's what we need to do. We need to repent, you know, this morning before we leave. Because if we don't, the enemy is just going to continue to deceive us. And the consequences are that the Lord will have less and less control of our life. Well, let's go on. Shechem said, uh, name your price, verse 12, to Jacob for their sister Dinah. And so uh, to his daughter, actually. And so it would seem he had come with his father, but he remained quiet until now. And you really do get the impression the father's in submission to the son here, not the other way around. And keep in mind by now, the brothers then have found out and they have joined their father and it says their reaction was twofold. It says they were grieved and angered. Okay. Interesting. Two different words, two different reactions. They were grieved for their sister because what had happened to them. And so that's that inner thing. You know, you just kind of, oh, you could imagine how you would feel if that had happened to your sister. And, and it says there, verse 7, such a thing ought not to be done. Okay. But then they were angry too. They were angry and that led them then to do something they shouldn't have done. And anyone, any normal person would be angry in this situation. Don't let anybody tell you that anger is necessarily a wrong emotion. It's something there. And if you are trying to live a life and never let anger come out, I think you're going about it wrong because I think anger is an emotion God gives us. But watch this very carefully. We're to do something. The Bible's very clear what we're to do with our anger. We're to let God have control of it, see? And so it's got to be controlled by the Lord and by the Spirit. Paul said, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, take care of it. Don't let it go into the next day and the next day and the next day and build and build and build so that you're going to take revenge. And that's important that you and I are making sure that, yes, we're going to get angry at times, but almost as quickly then just give it to the Lord and let the Lord help you deal with it. Okay. And so coming with this proposal, you know, say name your price. Look what we read in verse 13. Um, it says, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father, Hamar, and watch this, note this word, with the seed, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do the thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we accept, uh, will we we'll consent to you if you will uh, become like us in that every male of, your, of, of you be circumcised. And then we'll give your daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves 
and we'll live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. And so the key word to understand right here is the word in verse 13, deceit. Your Bible might actually say deceitfully. And it means to be false or treacherous, okay? In other words, they were tricking Hamar, Shechem, and every person in that city, the tribe of the Hivites. Why? Because their daughter had been divided, their sister had been defiled. And don't miss, this wrong had been done. But the question is, are we to take the wrongs done to us into our own hands and do with them as we see? Or are you and I to take the wrongs done to us and leave them with the Lord and let him deal with them? Of course, you know the answer. We're to let the Lord deal with it. And if you've done that, and there's something that you're hanging on to, again, you know, if there's been a wrong that's been done to you, and who hasn't had a wrong done to them? Right? Is there anybody? Nobody's in this room that hasn't been wronged. I might say, too, nobody's in this room that hasn't wronged somebody. Right? But we've been wronged. And if that's our case, again, the solution, and I, I need to encourage you, is you need to repent this morning of that. You've got to let go of those wrongs that have been done to you. And you need to let Jesus deal with it. Less like Jacob's sons, then you start taking the matter into your own hand and uh, you make a bigger mistake, a bigger wrong, and you end up in sin. And that happens, you guys. So important. Last night we had a wonderful, by the way, we had a wonderful dinner and the kids did a talent show. And Boy, if you missed it, I'm sorry. It's so funny. These kids are just hilarious. But I was sitting with Annalia and Seth and... I did their wedding for them last summer, and so they're coming up to a year mark. And, and I said, well, let's have some post-pre-marriage counseling. How you doing? How's the year been? You know, we were talking. And I just got sharing with them the importance, again, as I told them about how um, in pre-marriage, I always tell the couples I do pre-marriage with, man, you got to forgive. you got to love and forgive. There's got to be grace and mercy in a marriage, you know. But sadly, so often, you know, you see a marriage where that doesn't take place, and and so this year goes by, the next year goes by, and then 10 years go by. And, and really, people have developed these lists of, of wrongs. And then all of a sudden, maybe they come to you as a friend or me as a pastor and say, help. And you look at that wall and you go, it's a big wall. It's a thick wall. It's a strong wall. It's like, that's not going to be able to tear apart, see? And so that's why it's so important that you and I, when we're wrong, we just give it to the Lord. You know, and I know it's not easy, but I, I try. I try when it happens to me to do that. I try to remember what happened to the Lord. And I say, Lord, you're my Lord. If you could do it, then I want to do it as well. And so, again, it's something important. Well, we read on verse 18. Now, their words seem reasonable. The brother's words seem reasonable to Hamar and Shechem, his son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. And so Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city sin. And remember, as we've talked about in, the, in these Old Testament days, the cities would have walls, they'd have a gate. And at the gate is where business was taking place. Transactions, legal things, visiting, all that. So they go to the gate and here are the men of the city, the leaders of the city, and they begin then to share with them this thing. And so verse 21, these men, they say of Jacob and his family, are friendly with us. Therefore, let us live in the land and, and, and trade in it. And again, remember, all this is taking place because the son wants this girl. In a way, it's a very selfish thing. It's incredible that a whole city is going to be uh, required to be circumcised so the son could have what he wants. And so anyway, trade with us, for behold, the land is large enough for them, and let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughter to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us. In other words, Israel do that. To become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, and see here it is, and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will live with us. And all who were at our gate of the city listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the, of the gate of the city. And so um, what they proposed, the deceitful scheme, you're going to see why they did it. Most of you know the story. They bought into. And, you know, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see something real here. Where's Jacob? Where is Jacob? 
He is the leader of this family. He's the head of this family. Verse 6 says that Hamer and Shechem came out to speak with Jacob. Verse 8, though, seems to be saying that the brothers joined him afterwards as they came in from the field, but the reply is not from Jacob. Verse 13, the reply comes from the sons, and, and it's their words that, verse 18, that seemed good to Hamar and Shechem. And maybe in our day and age, boys of this age would be on their own. They're in their 20s, pushing even to their late 20s, some of them. But in this culture, this was a family. And even though most of them, again, were older, they were a family unit, and Jacob was the head of that unit. And as a family unit, Jacob was still the spokesman. And so the leadership that he had shown, remember before, when he was out of the land with Laban and everything else, he had led, he had done, he had set an example, but it's gone. It's not to be found. And so again, here's something else I want to show you that maybe today we need to see the proper and biblical place of leadership and submission. Again, it comes out here. Maybe you're a husband and a father and you are to be the spiritual leader in your home. You're to be the spiritual leader of your wife and of your children if that applies. It doesn't mean that you're to lead with an iron fist. Do you like to be led with an iron fist? I don't, you know. I like to be led with tenderness and gentleness and love and all that type of stuff. And so it, that's what it means. And it, and it doesn't mean that you lead and there's no input, you know. You know, in the Ephesians, the passage about husbands and wives, you go ahead and check me out on this. If you go check that passage out, it's actually talking about a mutual submission there. And of course, who are both to be submitted to? The Lord, see? So any guy, and guys tend to get sideways on this more than women, but when a guy gets sideways and basically thinks, I'm the head and you will do everything I say and da-da-da-da-da, that's not the love of Christ. You see, and that's not what the Lord would have us. But again, we want to be the spiritual leaders in our home. You know, and the first place, you know where that starts, guys? It starts with your depth in Christ. It starts with you on your knees for your wife, for your children, for you to be the leader you're supposed to be. And that's important. And again, be careful how you define spiritual leadership. You know, sometimes we're not sure and we, we kind of have an idea. This is what it should look like. And you want to make sure that's biblical, because sometimes I think we have ideas on our head of what our home should look like and all this. And when it doesn't happen, we think something's wrong and we have the wrong idea. You know, spiritual leadership in my home is um, being very sensitive to my wife, being mindful of her, what's going on with her, uh, doing things that I know she wants done. Um, it's being a servant, as Christ was a servant. I've said this before. I just have learned, it, takes, it took me a long time to learn this, but I just watch my wife, if you don't know, her name's Wink. I just watch where Wink wants things, and I realize that's where she wants it. So when I take off my shoes here and they always tend to be reappearing over there, you know what? That's where she wants them. And so I've learned, go take them off over there. And guess what? They stay there. And when mama's happy, everybody's happy, right? But see what I mean? And that's what spiritual leader look like, you know? It, it's sensitive, you know? And then it might look like sometimes where um, maybe I'm headed out and I'll say, come here, hon. And I... I, I, this isn't biblical and it's not a, it's not going to be found in the Bible, but I'm just going to make this up right now. I call it uh, spiritual hugging and praying. Okay. And so I'll give my wife a hug and I'll say, Hey, let me pray real quick and I'll pray for the day. And I know maybe some of you say, well, Scott, I leave so early and you know, my wife's doing this, that. Well, do you get a break in the morning? Can you pick up your phone during the day and say, how you doing, honey? Hey, can I pray with you real quick? And wives, if your husband does that, Okay, the first few times you might go, huh? What's he want? But after a while, let him pray for you, okay? He's trying to lead. Let him lead, see? But see, that's what I mean. And so, so we want to be those leaders, you guys. And I think this comes out here that Jacob had failed, but that's what we should be. If I go the other way, and again, ladies, I'm not saying that you have no place in leadership. I think ladies do lead. I think when... The husband's at work, and if it's a stay-at-home mom raising the kids, well, you better be leading. If you don't lead those kids, they will lead you. You know that. So you lead. So it's not. I'm not saying women just submit, you know, be quiet, do everything a man says. That's not what the Bible talks about at all. But I think there's another thing. If you're a wife or a mother, don't make it difficult for your husband to be a spiritual leader. You know, help your husband be the spiritual leader. Encourage him. Pray for him. 
learn that submission is not the evil thing that the world says it is. See, that's the world saying that. Submission isn't a bad thing. You know what? Just think about this. You are most content, you are most happy when? When you are submitted to the Lord. So all of a sudden you go, hmm, maybe that submission thing isn't as bad as I thought. And of course it's not. That's what the Lord wants. Well, let's go on. Verse 25, they carry out now their plan. Came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, remember I showed you that they all have the same mom, Leah. They each took his sword. They came upon the city unaware and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, that which was in the city and which was in the field. They captured and looted all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, even all that was in the houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men being a few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I'll be destroyed. I and my household. But they said, should should he treat our sister as a harlot? And so they carried out their plan. And if the other brothers knew or didn't know, we don't know. We don't know if the other brothers knew. We're just told that that Simeon and Levi carried out the plan. Um, Again, two of the seven to Leah and they took revenge for what had done. It's probably safe to think that the servants of Simeon and Levi helped out as well. So there was more than just two of them. And if the Hivites were um, a big people, a big tribe, or bigger at least than Jacob, uh, coming and then the height of the pain, the third day is the height of pain and circumcision. Maybe they were even, it was a night and there was a sleeping going on. It's, it's not unreasonable to think that they were able to wipe them out, like it says, and then carry away their belongings. And it's very interesting what Simeon and Levi did here was wrong. Okay, They took it into their own hands. They tried to make the wrong a right. But it's interesting when we get to the end of this book and we see that Jacob prophesies over his 12 sons just before he dies in Genesis 50. Listen to what he says of these two. He says, Simeon and Levi, notice he puts them together, are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let their soul not enter into their... Let, not, let my soul not enter into their counsel. In other words, I'll have nothing to do with them, what they did. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-willed, whose will? Their will, not God's. They lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so very interesting that... um, the prophecy that he pronounced over these brothers for what they had done. And it would seem Jacob was unaware until verse 30 of their plan. And so here he sees them. He's looking across maybe the field. And here they come with these women and children and belongings. And all of a sudden he realizes and he hears what they've done. And uh, as they have taken over. And, And again, it shows he was failing in his leadership. And so a wrong had been done. And they carried out a second wrong. And the funny saying, two wrongs don't make a right. There it is right there. Doesn't. See, can't do a wrong against a wrong and make it right. You know, revenge is never God's will for us. But it is something, uh, whether it's something big like this or, or something small. And, and sometimes we may say, well, you know, I don't carry out revenge on people. Well, when somebody wrongs you, how do you treat them after they've wronged you? What's the condition of your attitude towards them? See, that's a form of revenge. And we're not to have anything to do with it. And notice, this is really interesting, you guys. What God had deemed holy and special, you know what that is? The circumcision. See, remember back with Abraham. To be circumcised was something that was to be a special thing, a holy thing. Simeon and Levi corrupted it here. It's interesting that they lacked what they lacked, circumcision spoke about. They lacked a tender heart. They lacked a work in their heart the uh, condition uh, of the heart that the Lord wanted to have them have that would have, have, have let the Lord deal with this. And and so it's interesting that they took circumcision and, and really kind of wrecked it at this point for at least in this situation when it was that work of the heart. And if, if it had been working in their heart, that would have been it. And so they missed the chance to show God's mercy 
to show God's holiness. And instead they showed revenge and murder. And you guys, let me tell you, I can't encourage you enough. And I'm talking to myself as well. When, when we are tempted to get back at somebody, if you in the Lord's strength will say, you know what, I want to bless that person. I'm going to show mercy to that person. I want to show grace to that person. I'll tell you what, you'll be so happy when you do that because it blows them away. It's the most awesome thing to do, to, to give somebody that which they don't deserve. That's what grace is, right? And so that's what you and I need to remember. And so their sin, their actions, this act, their, their very lives. Notice verse 30. It says we're odious among the inhabitants of, of the land. You know, if you could say that with a, a British accent, it would probably sound really good. You know, odious sounds like that type of word. Um, you know what the translation is? Some of your Bibles might actually use these words is you stink and you are a stench. And sin is always that way. It makes one the same, you know, and we want to be careful. And that's the truth. I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. I'm not picking on you. But when we sin, let's not kid ourselves. It stinks. It's a stench. You know what I mean? And it's a stench under the Lord. And I think it's a good thing when you and I get to that point. We need to understand that it, it, something stinks when we sin and, and it should cause us and not to want it. Well, we go into verse 35. Watch what happens. And this is so important. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us arise and go up to Bethel and I'll make an altar there to God who answered me in my day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. And so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem and they journeyed uh, and, and as they journeyed there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And so Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him. He built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named um, Alambeketh. And then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Ram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. But you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. And then God went up from him to the place in that place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. And so Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. And then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were, there was some distance to go to um, Ephrathath, uh, or Ephrath, uh, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have, a, you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to um, Ephrathah, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed and on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went up and laid with Bilhad, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi, and Judah and Ishkar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhad, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtalah, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pedah Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years old. Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, an old man ripe of age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And so let me just give you a couple things Then I'm going to take you back to the beginning of the chapter because there's something that you've got to see here. It's really what is the most important thing. Some things that you just saw that let me help you make sense of them is it talks about in verse 8 the mention of Rebecca's nurse Deborah. 
And what that's all about, remember Rebecca is Jacob's mother and he had been sent away when Esau was threatening his life. Twenty years passed. Um, it's believed he never saw his mother again. But he did make trips from Shechem to Hebron and he probably saw his dad at that time. And, uh, and so that's where um, he had lived. During that ten years in Shechem then, Rebecca died. And so probably during one of those visits, Rebecca's nurse Deborah came to live with Jacob. And remember, the nurse would have known Jacob when he was a baby. And that lady would have taken care of him and cared for him. And so now she got to go live with him as he's a man. And that would be the honorable thing to do for him. So that's kind of that part. The second thing is, sadly, Rachel dies now. The one that Jacob so loved that he labored for 14 years for, really. So she had this hard childbirth. Uh, But Benjamin is born, the 12th boy, the 12th son, and he'll become the 12th tribe. She says, I'm going to name him Benomi, which means son of my sorrow. Of course, she's dying. She's in pain. But, but Jacob changes it and says, no, no, he will be the son of my right hand. Then we see in verse 22, this whole thing with Reuben disgracing, uh, this disgraceful thing as he sleeps with Bilhad, one of his father's, his father's wives. And again, the, there might be something there where he's trying to take control um, then we see that 12 sons and tribes are listed in verse 23. With the birth of Benjamin, it's complete. And then we see Isaac dies at Hebron 180 years. And then notice the last verse. Did you notice this? Isaac is buried. And watch who he's buried with, you guys. Esau and Jacob bury him. And if you're here last week, then you remember. But if you weren't, we realized last week we talked about how these boys were reconciled. There was a point where Esau wanted to kill Jacob. They became reconciled. And if there's any doubt that the reconciliation was real, here's the answer. It was real. Because here they are now, years later again, and they both come together to bury their father. So beautiful picture. Well, then let me show you, though, and this is, I think, the heart of the message this morning, is first of all, as we go to verse 35, I mean, chapter 35, verse 1, we see what happens. Something happens here. The Lord once again speaks to Jacob. What's happened, guys, is he's he's been in that land and God spoke to him and said, leave the land. okay? but then he went to Shechem. He probably shouldn't have settled there. Regardless of that, though, um, there's things going on that weren't good. He's not leading his family. There's idols within his family, everything else. But the Lord speaks to him and he says, go back to Bethel. And the Bethel was the place of the ladder. The place where he saw the angels descending and ascending. The place where he said, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. It's a place where he had a real spiritual experience. And God is saying, go back there. And God spoke, didn't he? Listen to this. God spoke to him at a very crucial time. And look how God spoke words of grace, not words of judgment. Oh, God wasn't happy with what he did. God didn't approve of what the boys did there. But God spoke words of grace and comfort to him. God always does that, doesn't he? That's the true mark of a heavenly father, of a real father. A real father can look beyond the mistakes his kids make at times. And he'll point them out when he knows they need to be pointed out. But other times they're overlooked because he knows right now I just need to show love to one of my kids. And that's exactly what we see here. It's a beautiful picture. And he assures Jacob of his plan again in verses 9 through 12. So the Lord once again speaks. And maybe for you this morning, that is something that the Lord wants you to hear. Maybe your life is kind of like that. And right now, God has been a little silent and God isn't speaking. And maybe the Lord is telling you, go back to your Bethel. See, Bethel doesn't have to be a place. Bethel doesn't have to be. I gave my life to the Lord 9-11-72. Back in those days, we remembered it, wrote it in our Bibles. I've written it in my Bible. Every time I get a new Bible, it's there. I can take you to North Seattle. I could show you the home where I gave my life to the Lord in this man's house, kneeling at the foot of his bed with his wife there too. See, I could take you to that place. But it isn't that. See, that is where I came to the Lord, but it doesn't have to be that. Bethel is that place where God is real. Bethel is that place where God is on the throne. And and so again, that's what the Lord would say to you and I. Go back to Bethel if you aren't in that place. Notice again, Jacob then once again leads, verses 2 through 4, as he calls for repentance. Verse 30, he's fearing, isn't he? The brothers did what they did. And man, you just see the guy's not not where he should be. You know, they're going to kill me and all the fear stuff's there. But now he realizes God spoke to him. God says, Jacob, come on, man. And he once again, he says, you know, calls for his family to repent. Put away the foreign gods. And obviously Jacob knew they were there and he hadn't done anything about it. But now he does. 
And he says, purify yourselves, change your garments. And I thought that was interesting. Why didn't, it, why, didn't it say just, why didn't it just say purify yourselves? Because we know, first and foremost, that's what God is talking about. He's always talking about the inward man, the heart. Purify that heart. Make sure it's controlled by the Lord. But here he says, change your clothes. And I thought, Lord, there's some truth to that. Because sometimes, Lord, we need the inner work, but then there's some outer stuff that needs to take place too. And I want to be careful here. I'm not going to try to say things or this, but you know, there could be things in our lives that should not be there. And we need to get rid of them. You know, and so again, it's an important thing. Then the Lord was with them, protecting them. Notice great terror came over them. He was afraid of the other nations, but God took care of that. Speaks there to me as he does that. What's taking place here? God's speaking to him. He's hearing God. They're repenting. They're getting rid of all the idols. He's going to get ready to set up an altar. And so God says, I'm with you. And I see an incredible picture that there is great power in repentance. There is... God's work in us and through us is released when we repent. Why? Because we're worse where God wants us to be. And if you lack power in your life, if you want more power in your life, maybe it's because there's things in your life that aren't supposed to be there. And if you will repent of those things, you will find the power of God coming into your life you've never seen. And then watch this. Are you still there? Look at verse 4. Something so incredible. As they, he calls them to repent, he says, take these foreign gods, you guys. And what does it say? Jacob hid them under the oak, which is near Shechem. Did anybody see this? We see the cross of Christ. And that's where all sin is dealt with. Isn't that interesting? That this tree outside of the city, outside of Shechem, is where they put all the stuff and buried it. And I said, Lord, that's the cross. That's Christ right there. Because that's where it all has to go, guys. Everything, our sin, our idols, our wrongs, we take them to the foot of the cross. We give them to Jesus and Jesus deals with them. So it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Isn't it? The Old Testament is wonderful. And so what has the Lord said to you this morning? You know, I hope, you know, sometimes he nudges us, you know. I don't always like to be the nudger, but I realize sometimes I am the nudger. And, uh, but it's not a bad thing when God is nudging us and reminding us. See? And that's what he's saying, you guys. He's just reminding you and I in this passage, hey, keep me first. Keep me on the throne. You know, don't drift. Don't forget me. Keep me in that place. And man, I'll work in your life and I'll work through your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.